Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this great country running. We exist to offer leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support us, their staff, every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's show on what is a sweltering spring morning here in the capital is Angus McFadzian. Angus is a director at Industrial Site Maintenance, a facility services company born from an industry requirement to provide support services to the public industrial transport logistics and production industries. Um, Angus, good morning. Good morning, Scott. It's a pleasure welcoming you onto the programme today and thank you so much for joining us. Um, I suppose a good place to start would be by addressing the elephant in the room here and that's the fact that although we're starting to emerge from social restrictions, we've been under some form of lockdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic for the best part of the last 14 months and just given how long that's sort of been hanging over us, to what extent has it all affected you and your business would you say? Well, where do we start, Scott? It's very interesting. I was with some um, leaders in business and industry uh, two nights ago, and I think everyone's seen the same thing. We've tried to work out as we've gone along. Every week we can see changes, and we're, we're trying to kind of keep up with the changes, Scott. And to be honest, currently what we're looking at is the new normal, and the new normal seems to be that we're going to have a lot more people working from home that's good and bad. You know, the, the production hasn't really been affected across the board from what I gather from all industries. We're just as productive working at home as we are in the office. And if it's office-based work, you can do that, obviously, if you're, if you're having to go into the coalface every day, it's a, it's a different story. But what's interesting is we have to keep the human factor. The human factor's been the, the winner and the loser for everyone this year. And by that, what I mean is we want to try and make sure we have an ability to get face-to-face. And this is the biggest challenge all the way through now, is to try and work out how to have enough face-to-face, how to have enough working from home, and the effect that that's going to have both on us as humans plus business. Yeah, exactly. It seems like the status quo of working practices going forward from here is going to be sort of a hybridised approach between the two because albeit there are merits to the work from home approach, um, especially with the effects that it has on the work-life balance, it isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach, is it? So that in-person interaction, that ability to sort of get brains together in one room, that is going to be immensely important, as you say. Well, I've got got a client, he's he's lovely, he runs a it's 100 company and he was saying that all the money they've saved this year on you know costs such as per DM I mean their budget was three and a half million they spent 800,000 of it because people aren't going out for lunches and doing you know meetings in the usual hotels and meeting places up and down the country so he's taken that budget and he's put it straight back into providing better chairs in people's homes better screens uh, sending you know parcels out to make them feel like they're still loved and and joined the company and it's funny because he was saying the same thing as most people are saying now it's going to be three and two it's going to be three at home and two in the office or two in the office and three at home and that seems to be the new normal the standard for businesses moving forward Scott is that Mm. we're going to have to work out what works best in that sense for us 
Do you think it's a different sort of challenge when it comes to managing people virtually and sort of directing them from a distance, or do you find it easier? No, you can feel it. So the supply chain has become the biggest challenge, Scott. We are struggling very much now to be able to meet demand. There was a, a real shift about six months ago in the supply chain where the stuff coming in from Europe due to Brexit and COVID mm. basically came to a standstill. And trying to get, your, you know, whatever it is that you're ordering is quite often now coming late. It's costing more. But the big challenge is if it doesn't arrive, it's due to Brexit or to COVID. And this is this is where we really need to be careful. We, we need to set a, a standard model up and really get the government to lobby hard to try and open the doors back up again. Yeah, that's certainly something that's going to be really important going forward, isn't it? Because if we're talking about an economic recovery, frictionless free trade is going to be an important part of that. And no matter what was said back on Christmas Eve about the uh, the deal itself, it's not entirely true that it's frictionless free trade because there's a huge administrative burden on businesses at the moment and there is disruption there, it's clear. Well, I think most people are saying at the moment it's a farce because mm. what used to happen was we used to have free trade with Europe, the stuff came in, it was delivered on time, that was easy and then the next day, customs got involved on both sides and started playing a political uh, game really and it would be very nice to think that over the next six months we've actually gone out to Europe we've made friends again, we've opened the doors back up, we've stopped all this Niggling. I mean, some of the things that were happening up north in my homeland, Scotland, where we weren't allowed to export lobsters uh, the day after, mm. you know, Brexit. And, you know, the fishing industry's really got, and that's another story for another day. Down south here, and in my industry, and in industry in general, it's a, it's a slightly different story. I mean, commodities. I mean, you can see things like paper has become such expensive and hard to get commodity now. Um, even things like substrates through the building industries just now, because of the impact of HS2, they're incredibly hard to, to, to get. You can look at the supply chain from Europe and trying to get things like machines. You're looking at six months, whereas it was next day delivery, really. Yeah, it's a big challenge, isn't it? Um, it's a huge logistical issue that businesses have had to get around. And we've seen on an unprecedented scale, businesses having to adapt and to innovate to quite a difficult challenge, not just from COVID, but for a lot of others. As you say, they've been grappling that sort of double-pronged challenge of the Brexit conundrum and the aftermath of that coming into action, Correct. and also the pandemic Correct. as well. Um, with that in mind, um, albeit it has been an immensely challenging period, would you say that some businesses and business leaders are coming away from this, having maybe learned something for the troubles that they've had to undergo? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting word. Innovation, you know, is the, is the child of necessity. You know, we have to innovate. And, and we're very good at that in this country. I mean, innovation was what born this country and industry, and we continue to innovate every day to try and keep up with the rest of the world. But in reality, what's actually happening is that industry is recovering, but it's pushing humans to one side. So. My industry, for example, is the warehouse industry, a lot of the people we support. And home delivery has become a massive growth area. And with the home delivery, we're building warehouses as fast as we can put them up. We're putting the humans in the warehouse. 
and we're forgetting about how to look after these people well, how to you know employ them well and look after them. And this is what I worry about: is the high streets collapse and everything becomes home delivery. What we're actually going to be left with in the high street, for example, what we're actually going to look at is for jobs for ourselves. We're going to be working within these tin boxes as a standard. I'd love to see a shift going back to the government supporting the high street, trying to get retailers back on their feet and try to find a balance between the two. I think that's very right. And I think it's important what you say about retail for sure. And I suppose there were a lot of worries about... um, consumer confidence taking a while to return because of covid and of course that being a lingering issue for that sector but it seems that there is the appetite there for people to actually go out and spend money even despite the financial situation so i suppose there is some room for optimism there going forward but don't you think that's a worry scott because you look at how much money people have saved not going out and mm. then you can see this massive drive in the, in the house industry to support the economy and I'm worried this is going to end up in another big shot because you can see interest rates at an all-time low. Yes, we've had the stamp duty relief, but this is, again, another false economy. I'm worried that when we have to go back out and pay the paper, let's go, I'm 50 years old. Mm. And, I've, I, and in my lifetime, I've seen this twice. And we all know that if we go out and we just create this massive boom in the housing industry, eventually it, it has to recede because interest rates will have to rise again. And we will have to, you know, try to you know, pay back the debt. When that happens, you know, people are taking on huge amounts of debt. And I think that's the biggest risk at the moment. Mm. I think you're very right, because albeit the government has stepped in with things like the furlough scheme with the coronavirus business interruption loans, we are, in a sense, kicking the can down the road, aren't we? And there is going to be a point again where business is going to have to feel the pinch. And that's sort of the kind of lingering doubt over industry at the moment. The, the one good thing I would say, Scott, from this, and the thing that we've all learned, is that we don't have to continue this drive to the office five-day working week. There's an absolute change happened for the right reasons. And I'm sort of often an indicator of this. You know, on a Friday in any office in the country, depending on what you do, of course, it can be the most unproductive day of the week. And I would love to see a, a normal shift. I mean, I'm a big fan of the four-day week. I really am. I think mm. that we can get 36 hours in a lot better and give ourselves more free time. And I think that's what we've learned this year. Yeah, I think we've learned a lot about the work-life balance for certain. And there's also been rightly as well, a greater sort of amplification of the mental health and well-being side of things as well. And there is also the worry that one of the legacies of COVID is going to be a mental health crisis and understandably so just because of that lingering impact of sort of lockdowns intermittently coming and going. And again, even though we're sort of closer to that freedom date than we've ever been, we're still sort of in limbo and we're not quite sure or whether that is going to go ahead as planned? Well, the, work, the workplace has changed forever, Scott. There's no two ways about this. So in my business, we supply cleaning services, for example. We've gone out and we've done huge amounts of work. We continue to do it every day to try and keep people in the workplace. So we've gone in there and we've done quite a lot of good things, such as you know we, we can go in and we can clean to high level and we can, we can disinfect our hands and we can look at the air quality in the offices. 
But what we will be doing is not going back to the office ever again in the same way, not certainly for the short to medium term. Mm. And what that actually means for people is that they have to engage the new normal. And it would be clear direction now from business owners and governments to the point where we can support people in the home environment. So we, if we're going to work from home, we need to work in a capable way. If you can't work in your house, can you build something in your garden? Can you go there? Is that the new home? Can you be supported in doing that from your employer and the government? I'd like to see some lobbying coming into place to, to try and make that a possibility. Mm. And I suppose some things as well are not just, of course, the smart devices to make that possible, but also the gigabit capable broadband that needs to be rolled out That's across right. the UK as well. That's going to be absolutely massive and a big part of that agenda. That's right. That's right. And one of our clients um, in particular has done some incredible things where they're going out now and they're actually providing pods so that they give their, their employees pods. They can just put them in the garden. Some people are actually putting them in other people's gardens so it actually feels like they're, they're walking to work in the morning. So these sort of innovations will allow people to work from home. They'll allow them to go to work. Yes, the Zoom meetings and everything in between are great. The impact on humans in the winter months is far greater than the impact in the summer months. So right now, we can all go out and take a laptop into the garden and work away and it feels great. So going into this winter, I fear it's going to be a, a winter of discontent again. I think that mm. the, the cases will rise. We will, um, we will be unable to do the sort of work from the office in the winter that we do in the summer. And this, again, is going to be the new normal, Scott. Yeah, exactly. It's um, There's still a lot of questions to be asked about what kind of future we have to look forward to. And the winter, again, is going to be an incredibly important period when, again, of course, flu season comes back and there is that threat of new variants that, again, is still a little bit of an unknown. And even though we don't have a crystal ball, Angus, just before we do sort of wrap things up, just because I'm conscious that we're running short of time, um, what are you sort of predicting in the longer run over the next 12 months? And where really are you hoping your business to be, even if we do have to navigate another tricky winter? Well, again, I'll go back to the new normal. I think the new normal is going to be a three and two working week from home to the office. So I think hopefully we'll see some respite from the restrictions coming through Europe at the moment to allow uh, free trade. I do hope that we go into this winter better armed in a sense where we can actually keep supporting retail business to get the high streets back open. And when it comes to my industry and those types of industries, I think the government really needs to do whatever they can to try and release release the tax impact. We did quite a lot of good work last year with Sybil's loans and furlough schemes, but I think to try and keep businesses running, the government could offset quite a lot of the the tax, really, especially to try and kind of keep people back in the in the workplace. Scott. Mm. It's um, a very, very key time. And I think the government, as you say, does have to do all it can to keep the country and industry running. And I think as well, Angus, just when we start to get a little bit more of an idea of what kind of picture this recovery, so-called, is taking, that it would be really productive to actually welcome you back onto the show and discuss exactly what's changed and what is happening, because at this point we can only speculate. And I've got to say, it's been a real eye-opener for myself and I'm sure for the listeners as well, welcoming you onto the show today. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me.
And just because we're not quite out of the woods with this yet, and there is still that uncertainty there, do as well continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on as well. Thank you very much, Scott. And I'd also like to extend that message to all of our listeners tuning in today. Um, Following on from this interview, we'll be joined by incumbent Leaders Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett, who's going to be offering his take on the events of the last 14 months and his hopes for the weeks to come and the economic reopening that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up 
inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who have mm. something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically, locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, 
they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because 
Mm-hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, now- it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions, having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, Mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, on the back of that. It was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, these kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will 
make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of 
low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it, it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways... Uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset 
and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.